Hello, and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Kamel Caruso, Chief Revenue Officer for HerMD and your host for today. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Today, I'm joined by our founder, Dr. Somi Javed, and a patient of ours, Lori, who is here to share her story about perimenopause and low libido. She's talking about her symptoms, her healthcare journey, and what her life is like now. Welcome, Lori, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thanks for having me. And so today, we're going to be talking about your story around perimenopause and low libido. Oprah wrote of her own experience with perimenopause, and she was 47. And she wrote a pretty great blog article for, I think it was Elle Magazine or her website. And she basically described it as like a wake-up call from her body. And it was this evening, and she woke up with like heart palpitations. Like, what is this? I have no idea what's going on. She went to her doctor. She knew she was told no heart disease, which she already knew. And she said over the next six months, her attempts to figure out what she had led her to four doctors and not one of them could explain the palpitations and they couldn't give her an answer. And then finally her trainer was like, maybe it's the big M. And she was like, I don't think I'm ready for the big M because I'm not waking up with hot flashes. I'm not in my fifties. I'm still having my periods. Like why has no one really told me about this? And so as I was reading that, I thought to myself, I mean, I'm reaching 40. Like, I don't even know what the symptoms or signs are. And I bet, you know, a lot of women don't. So what was it like for you, Lori, when you entered perimenopause? How old were you and what symptoms were you experiencing? Yeah, I think the most terrifying thing was like, Oprah, nobody said anything. I literally thought I was a lunatic. I'm screaming at my kids. My husband's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I have no idea. It was this roller coaster of waves of emotion all the time and not having any control. So it was kind of scary. And the same thing, you know, everybody said, oh, you're just fine. It's nothing. You're mid forties. You're a busy mom. You're a working mom, blah, blah, blah. Um, and everyone's solution was always just, well, you can go back on the pill. Well, I was 40 something. So it was probably early forties when I first started the the weirdness, mm-hmm. right? The, the kind of feeling psycho and not having any control and, <laughs> being like, what is going on? If you didn't know me better, I'd be like, am I pregnant again? Like it was that kind of weird, just these strange surges of, I don't know what it was. So, you know, starting to investigate and I really just felt out of control. And I think that was the scariest part is it wasn't that I felt bad. I just didn't feel in control of who I was anymore, which was unsettling. So Dr. Javid, what are the signs of perimenopause and what ages does the onset occur? So Lori was early forties. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm 40. I'm like, right. Just wait till you're in the late forties. Am I going to be lucky to explain my crazy behavior? (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, what are some of the signs and symptoms? So it's really interesting. And, and, you know, Lori touched upon this, you touched upon it. Oprah did as well. And I think we as physicians and clinicians do a disservice to women because in medical school, well, what is menopause, first of all, before we get into perimenopause? The average age in the United States is 51. And there's two definitions set by ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. The first is no menses for 12 months. If I waited to treat patients until then, I would be murdered. Lori's shaking her head. And Uh the second is 
let's say someone's had a partial hysterectomy or they've had an ablation and so you can't go by their cycles, how else do you diagnose someone with menopause? And that is we check an FSH level, which is um, the menopause hormone. And if it's greater than 30 on two occasions, it's released from the pituitary gland and it is trying to wake up the ovaries and say, hey guys, we don't have enough estrogen and testosterone, our two hormones that are produced in the ovary. So FSH, this menopause hormone goes up as our hormones decline. And people are like, well, why am I, if I'm not fully menopausal, why am I symptomatic? And Lori can probably recite this herself and my patients <laughs> can see me. Estrogen levels can be close to 500 when we are not menopausal, depending on where we are in our cycle. And as we go into menopause, it drops down to less than 30. So then perimenopause is somewhere in there, right? And estrogen levels are dynamic until we go into menopause and then they kind of do that cliff dive like you were talking about. So when people come to me and I check their estrogen and it's 40 or 50, it's like, well, you're not menopausal yet. Why am I symptomatic, Dr. Javade? Well, think about it. So the way I compare it is cups of coffee. Your body was used to like six cups of coffee. That's where your estrogen level was. And you're not down to zero, but you're down to two. So that delta, that drop, you're going to feel that. I mean, think about it. If you were withdrawing from caffeine, you're going to get headaches. You're going to be sluggish. Mm -hmm. So estrogen is this great fountain of youth. It helps with our skin and our sleep and our joints and our hair. And it helps us feel really, really good and young. And all menopause is, is the withdrawal of estrogen, right? As we go into menopause, we stop producing as much. And so it's this massive withdrawal from this euphoric drug. And so people in perimenopause complain to me about mood problems, memory problems, cognition, word finding, weight gain, slower metabolic rates, loss of muscle mass pain and stiffness in their joints. It's not arthritis a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, lowered sex drive, being more snippety at their children or their spouses, sleep disturbances, hot flashes, vaginal dryness. And it's very interesting in perimenopause, the reason they're so confused is they may not feel like that the entire month. Because remember, I told you those estrogen levels are dynamic. And so they're like, well, my vagina feels dry for a week and then I'm fine, but I'm still having my period. Like what is happening to me, Dr. Javade? And Lori, so many people say to me, it feels like pregnancy. Pregnancy is a low estrogen, high progestin state. So menopause, low estrogen state. So when people say to me, this feels like pregnancy, you're not crazy. It's because the hormonal dynamics, the hormonal shifts are very similar. So I tell people all the time, they ask me, well, when am I going to go into menopause if I'm perimenopausal? I was like, I'd be a rich woman if I could predict that. I do check levels. But some people will wake up like my mom, not have a period and never have a period again, no symptoms whatsoever. And then other women are symptomatic for years. For some women, it can take two to three years to fully transition into menopause. And then the next question is, well, well, then I'm through menopause, right, Dr. Jade? Like, I'm not going to have any symptoms. Like, I, I, went, I did my withdrawing. I'm done. I'm like, mm, no. That just means now you've, you've gotten into menopause. We have to get you ready with your next steady state. You'll plateau. Eventually, you'll feel okay. But a lot of women still require treatment into menopause. So that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> uh, but that was really helpful because 
I didn't know how much estrogen can impact so much of just your overall health, well-being, mental state, like interactions with people, everything. So Lori, when Dr. Reed was explaining that, I I saw you nodding and like saying yes, like several years and a couple of the different different symptoms. So I know you felt like it was like you were kind of out of your body almost and having these waves of emotions. What other symptoms did you experience and how long did that go on for? Well, I'm still in it. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's, we're not out yet. We okay. are, I will be 50 this year and it's not going anywhere. Okay. Cause I just went to Dr. Drew Bade and she did not say I was in the big M. So okay. we're still, we're going to ride this out for a while. And it is, it is a roller coaster. Let me tell you, cause I was kind of begging for the big M right now. Cause I'm over it. No, but there were lots of things that, that you had mentioned. I've had some heart palpitations that were just kind of unsettling, but I also know I have a healthy heart. So I didn't really attribute that to anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the night sweats would come and go, but it is not consistent. Like most people in menopause that I know it's regular hot flashes. These would come every few months, you know, they, they come in a wave and I'd be like, what is going on? And then I would be totally fine. The joint pain is significant for me. But again, it's not all the time. I can usually attribute that rate close to my cycle. So it literally feels like if I knew what 85 felt like with really bad joints, that's what it feels like. But I don't have arthritis. So that overall kind of muscular joint ache for no apparent reason kind of always lingers. But again, it's like that two weeks right before the cycle. Other things I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of dryness that was kind of intermittent, but I did have a lot of breakthrough bleeding, which led me to go find Dr. Javade because it was inexplicable and it wasn't anything that was super concerning because I had an ablation to try to mitigate it because Mm -hmm. they couldn't figure out what was going on at my OB who gives my OB for both my baby, but there was something we were missing because it wasn't alleviating any of that kind of I think I had, I journaled for a long time as this kind of started to kind of track my cycle, track the days I bled, track the days I felt weird and crazy. And I literally might've had two good weeks a month. And that's not even an exaggeration where I felt like sexy and good and felt like myself, maybe two weeks out of a month. And I'm like, this isn't right. And what's interesting now that I know, and now that I found her MD, I've got a girlfriend going through the same thing. I'm like, I know what this is. Like, this is what you have to ask. This is what you need to do. And she's like, really? I said, yes, I found someone. I mean, I know you're not crazy. And that was the thing that was the most revealing thing for me. When I first started this whole journey, I thought I was losing my mind and I I would just cry. And my husband's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. And when I finally had that second appointment and I got in the car and I called him, I'm like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. The tears just flooded. And I'm like, I know what this is. She can fix it. Like, I'm going to be okay. Like we got to ride this out, but it's going to be so much better. So yeah, it's a myriad of, um, I just call it, it's, it's a roller coaster. And now what's funny is now that I'm into it even farther, it's a little bit of a different roller coaster, right? So things are changing. Like some things will mellow out. And then one month I'm like, well, what's going on right here? Cause this doesn't feel right. But you know, I'm on the, I'm on the long track, so I'm on the, I'm in the extended plan to get to menopause, I guess, <laughs> just like whatever. And so something that Lori said, I want to touch on that is the reason she's able to tell when her symptoms, like why right before her cycle. 
So estrogen levels increase until we ovulate. And yes, in perimenopause, you are still ovulating. Maybe not every month, and that can explain the abnormal bleeding, right? Because if you break it down really simply, and I'm just teaching, it's like your body's getting ready to have a baby. You ovulate. That's an alarm clock. And if you don't get pregnant, two weeks later, your lining sheds. And so that is not always predictable in menopause because of hormonal shifts. So we may not be ovulating every month. But to allow our bodies to have a cycle, estrogen levels then markedly drop off and progestin increases. And so that drop off is why she becomes symptomatic right before her period. Um, It's why a lot of women who have menstrual migraines like myself, that delta, that drop in the estrogen that allows us to have a cycle also can trigger menstrual migraines. And remember, the circulating levels in perimenopause of estrogen are starting to decline. So then you may be hitting a lower point than you ever had before. I did not have menstrual migraines in my 20s. I'm certainly having them now. So that's been the gift of perimenopause to me is almost monthly now horrific menstrual migraines. But um, women who have chronic medical conditions who, you know, a lack of estrogen can make it worse will say to me, you know, my joints hurt worse right before my cycles or my PMS gets really bad or my vaginal dryness is really bad right before my cycle. And I tell them that's, that's very normal. And it's amazing, just like Lori said, as long as you educate your patient, empower them and explain to them what's going on, women are so grateful They're not mad at you for telling them that they're going through something. They're like, thank you for figuring it out and let's work on this together. And I feel like as long as I prepare them and give them options, because when you're in perimenopause, you cannot put women on full-blown hormone replacement therapy. It's actually dangerous. And that's why Lori was offered a birth control pill at other locations. And sometimes we do do that. But there are plenty of other options to treat the symptoms. You have to figure out what is most bothersome to the patient. And for patients, they have to journal, keep track, and then really be able to advocate for themselves and to explain to their physicians what's going on. And frankly, just like Lori did, if your physician's too busy, if they've dismissed you, then you need to find someone who will listen to you um, and be a partner in your care. Circling back on that, Lori, you said you had journaled, Mm -hmm. you talked to your previous physician. What was it to like, number one, not really understanding what all of these kind of mishmash of different symptoms were, trying to find information that led you to any kind of answer, and then also a physician that was able to finally diagnose you and tell you, okay, this is perimenopause, and this is going to be the, let's work on this plan together. So we'd have discussions, but it was always, he wasn't, it it wasn't dismissive. Like, I don't want to send that wrong message. This is not a slam on my OB. He was male. It's very difficult to have that conversation with a male obstetrician. So some of the things that I could divulge once I found the right person never came out in those initial conversations. It was always the physical aspect of, I bleed here. I do this. I don't feel right. He could always connect the dots on the physical stuff. Right. But he couldn't connect the dots on the other things. And I wasn't always super comfortable saying, well, you know, I really would like to do it, but I'm just not feeling it right now. That was a hard conversation to have with him Mm -hmm. because he delivered my baby. So that was one aspect. It wasn't that he was wrong. It just, that comfort level wasn't there, Mm -hmm. that connection. Right. Once I got there, then I actually did pursue the synthetic hormones one round and that completely freaked me out. 
I thought it was going to solve all my problems based on some research that I had done, some reading, you know, Hey, try this because you obviously need hormone therapy. If you feel like your whole body is up and down all over the place. I tried some herbs, tried some essential oils, you know, like everybody goes to the easy stuff, did the synthetics and honest to goodness, whatever was going on, it was like, I went zero to 120 and could not get control. So it was the opposite end of the spectrum, right? I purposefully put myself in this overdrive, getting these pellets put in my butt muscle for four months to release. And it was supposed to be this magic cure-all. And it was, I was this crazed, horny lunatic for three months. And it was awful. It was awful. And I had acne everywhere. And I did it for, I think I did two or three rounds. I'm like, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. So then God love a friend of mine on Facebook who just had posted something about Dr. Javade's practice. And I just DM'd her and I said, tell me about this woman. And I'm telling you, it changed my life. And I send everyone I know to that practice because it is, it was life-changing because I'm like, I don't have to do all this crazy stuff anymore. I don't have to do all this crazy internet research. There's a woman who totally gets it. I can talk to her. She understands and she has a way to get me through it. It's not a fix. Like I can't say that I'm a hundred percent fixed, but I can get through it in a more tolerable way and things are a lot better. I wish I had a menopause wand, you know, that I could just go like, poof. Me too. <laughs> right? You touched on so much stuff. So, you know, I'm not anti-supplement by any means. I'm not anti-essential oils or, you know, people going to functional medicine doctors at all. I'm a key opinion leader for a lot of companies. I do a lot of FDA um, consulting. I do clinical research trials. So the FDA, I'm big proponent of prescribing medicines because it's controlled. I know exactly what you're getting. There's only allowed a certain amount of variance, and I know what it's going to do to your blood levels. There are a lot of supplements and over-the-counter stuff that I do recommend, things that have been around a long time. Where I get upset is when my patients get suckered, um, when people prey on women's desperation, when women have gone the traditional route and either aren't comfortable talking to their doctor or their doctors are too busy because of our broken healthcare system or they're just not getting any solutions or any offers of help. And so they end up, you know, ordering these kits, checking hormone levels from their urine, going to these pop-up hormone shops where a physician is hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And so my goal is to save them from those places, for them to come into doctors like our practice and other, I have lots of colleagues who practice really sound menopause medicine so that they're educated they're explained in a nice way what's happening, and then they're given options, whether they're over-the-counter, whether they're prescription. There are safe over-the-counter options, and there are then also unsafe options. People assume because it's over-the-counter, there's no hormone. They're, they're still hormone. They're just derived from other sources, but it can still give you things like abnormal bleeding, headaches, and that's why I always prefer that patients are under the care of a gynecologist who can then deal with issues like abnormal bleeding, get an ultrasound or, or do whatever, because there are side effects of all treatment options. So I think that's a, a big resounding message that I want people to hear. And I do advocate that people do their own research, but I also am very weary because people will come in and say, well, I got on this site and a bunch of women were talking. Well, I think that's great for camaraderie. And I love the fact that women are sharing experiences and at least talking about these sensitive issues and not being embarrassed. 
But I also think sometimes people squirrel each other and are like, I had a really bad experience with traditional medicine. Don't do it. You know, go this route. And I don't like closing any doors. I think a woman has a right to gather information and decide what's best for her. Yeah, agreed. And Laura, you mentioned your friend that you found a friend who was who posted something and you connected mm-hmm. with her. As you were going, you know, and as you still are, but like going through perimenopause, are your friends like talking about it, supportive of each other, comfortable with it, or is everyone kind of just dealing with it on their own? I think the latter. And the only reason they talk about it is because I make them. Like well, that's good. You're the voice and the advocate for your I don't friend. think I don't think it's taboo to talk about. And I think maybe it's because I found a physician who would listen and would talk to me about it and be like, this isn't scary anymore. Like, I think this is what's going on. So you need to call so-and-so or ask this question because I've now been educated. So I'm more of an advocate of, Hey, what's going on? I've been there. Like, is this happening to you? Do you feel like this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What do I do? I'm like, well, a call my person or B ask these questions. I mean, my very best girlfriend from college is going through it right now. And I gave her a myriad of questions. She has an appointment this week with her physician, I'm like, ask these questions because this is what I've learned. I'm pretty sure you sound exactly like I was, you know, four or five years ago where I didn't know what was going on. So I think it's okay, but I think you have to have the one person who will instigate the conversation. It doesn't come up naturally. It's just like urinary incontinence for those of us who've had babies. You don't talk about it, but everybody knows it's there and everybody knows everybody has the same problem. But it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to keep that to myself. I'm like, but why? It's natural. You know you're doing it. You know you feel it. So why not? Like, it's okay. I used to think it was a cultural thing because I grew up in a pretty conservative culture. And then now I see it's it's very much a generational thing. It's, it's all mm-hmm. of us in our 40s and 50s whose mothers didn't really talk about it. And I'll even have some of my patients, they're very honest with me. They're like, Dr. Javade, we don't feel like you should be talking about that on TV. Or we don't think it's proper when you talk about it on social media. And I'm like, well, tell me why. Like, why am I offending you? Or why is it my my goal is I'm coming from an educational standpoint. I'm not trying to offend anyone. And they're like, no, no, we get it, Dr. Javade. It's just, and then they just tell me how they grew up. And I'm like, I grew up the same way. Same. we didn't discuss that. Like it, it was not proper, but I will tell you the younger women, my daughters included, have no problem discussing it. And that's, I do want that to change. In a medical setting, I want women to be able to discuss what's going on with them and to advocate for themselves so they don't end up in the wrong places or misdiagnosed or frankly, just symptomatic and without an answer. My young 20-year-olds, even 30-year-olds, they come in armed with questions. They have no qualms talking to me about their sexuality, their lack thereof, sexual pain, or PMS, because that's how they struggle with their hormone imbalances, sexual pain, or just pelvic pain in general. I have young girls talking to me about their cycles. I would have never been able Mm -hmm. to advocate for myself in a doctor's office. I mean, this is hysterical. The first time I went to a gynecologist, I passed out cold and had smelling salts because I was bleeding. bleeding. I love that story. I mean, I don't love it, but I I was bleeding, bleeding, bleeding abnormally, like through my clothes. My parents were very conservative. They knew enough to take me to the doctor because I ended up having polycystic ovarian. But they put me in the room with this very old man who didn't exam, who didn't explain anything and was not inappropriate at all. He's a very, very nice man. 
But I had no idea what was happening to me. I was not sexually active, had never been explained anything. He went to do the exam with the nurse in the room, out cold. I mean, I woke up smelling salts and I was like, that was my first visit to the gynecologist because we didn't talk about it. And that my aim is to end that so that doesn't happen. Had my mom explained to me what he needed to look at, what he needed to do, what was going to happen to me and and why, I would not have passed out cold. But I think I didn't understand what was happening. And I was like 13 and passed out cold. I was in college. Mine yeah. was even worse. Like I had horrible cramps. I would get sicker than a dog as a teenager with my period. And my mom was like, oh, I used to get sick too. Here's hey. some, here's some Advil. You'll be fine. Just get through it. And, and I went to college and I get up there in the stirrups and I'm like, I don't know what <laughs> it was awful. No it was awful. Like I have a daughter too, who's 19 and she will talk about it with, you know, her friends. They're much more vocal, yeah. but I do get a sense like with my, my girlfriends who are, you know, in their late thirties into their early fifties, I can't even, and look where I work. I work at her MD. I'm talking <laughs> about it all the time. I'm on so, but I'm, finding it very hard to recall, except for one girlfriend that we talk about like sex and sexual health with, like talking about menopause or perimenopause or your periods or anything like that. And I, I know for a fact, some of us are at least struggling with something. Right. And, but no one, it's like this shame. I don't even want to say it's shame. You're just embarrassed. You don't want to admit that you have that problem. And it's so unfortunate. Well, I think some of it, so, so I'm thinking back as we're having this little powwow about how we communicate when we had babies, you would share anything with everyone when you were all pregnant. Yeah. You know, this is happening. Do you have this, this is swollen, this pain here. But then I think you get to this phase and nobody, at least this is my assumption. None of us want to admit we're here. Right. So, so it's 40 something. And then it's going to be, I mean, I'm having a really hard time this year. Not going to lie. Like this is 50 and it makes me kind of nauseous. But I think that's it. It's not that it's shame. It's not that we don't want to talk about it. It's that we have to admit that we're in this time of our lives that we thought was a million miles away when we were having babies and we blinked and we're in the middle of it. And we have no idea how to accept what's happening. But I think the bigger acceptance is we're here. And this is where my mom is supposed to be. You know what I mean? No, I I totally agree. I agree as well, but the reason it has to change, and Comel has heard me say this a thousand times, Lori, like there are already so many barriers to women's healthcare, right? There's lack of funding, female leadership, there's um, provider bias. There are so many delays in diagnosis. And if we do not help our girlfriends come forward, our sisters, our mothers, or in fact, just advocate for ourselves... You know, we know, Kamel, there's with working with White Dress Project, what a delay there is in diagnosis of fibroids, you know, for a multitude of reasons. But some of it, remember, was the mothers of the patients saying, that's normal. All the women in our family have really heavy cycles. And then by the time some of the people we know got to their doctors, they had 19 fibroids, right? And so it's like, how does this happen? We cannot normalize the abnormal as women. We we need to stop. We cannot normalize, you know, hormonal fluctuations or abnormal bleeding or painful sex or low libido or painful periods. We need to stop and normalize it and allow it to come to, you know, discussion, whether it's all of us together or going to our providers 
And I think that's the other thing is I want all of us to stop being yet another barrier to healthcare and yet another delay in diagnosis, right? Imagine if we just just kept letting you go on the way that right. you were feeling, you know, no. you're less productive as a mother, as a wife, as a human being, and just, just overall quality of life, right? It's so different. Well, and I think if I would have let it go, I'm not sure our marriage was going to suffer because it, you know, well, why don't you want to do it? Why don't you feel good? Cause I just don't, and I don't know why I'm upset and I don't know why I don't want you anywhere near me, but I just don't right now. Right. And when I was pregnant, there was a reason I'm like, you can't get near me because of X, Y, Z, like <laughs> don't come near me for a myriad of reasons. Anyone who's had a baby understands that, but at this age that that's not a barrier anymore. So he was like very confused and it was tense and mm-hmm. it, it was going to become a huge problem because I needed to figure it out. So, yeah, so you're touching on, so low, low libido, which you were, oh, definitely. You were, so was that in conjunction with your, with perimenopause or because of perimenopause? I don't know exactly. I will defer to my experts. She <laughs> takes care of me on that one, but it was definitely a, a signal that something wasn't right because that was not like me or our relationship at all. So uh, again, I discount the baby years because everybody knows what happens there. Everybody's on pause. It's lucky if you get, you know, a second, but typically no, it was, it was never a hindrance. So that kind of freaked me out a little bit because it was so unlike me, Mm -hmm. not that I'm a horn dog or anything. Don't get me the wrong idea, but you know, um, it would be okay if you were true. (laughs) I am married. It's okay. Very true. Very true. It's the no judgment zone. So what you're touching on is HSDD, right? Hypoactive sexual desire disorder. There are a multitude of factors, but as we're going into perimenopause, we touched a lot on estrogen, but testosterone is also produced in the female ovary. It is just as important as it is for men, for us, for all the domains of sexuality. So it positively impacts orgasm and arousal and desire um, and prevents pain. So as our estrogen levels start to drop off, so do our testosterone levels. And so for a lot of women in perimenopause, all of a sudden they're dealing with HSDD. One in 10 women are, so it's pretty common. Um, They just don't know oftentimes what it's called or even how often it happens. It can also happen from a side effect of medications, from a chronic medical condition, um, relationship problems. I know that was not the case here. You know, there's so many other things. When people are having pain, they're not going to want to have intercourse. So there are a multitude of reasons that can cause low libido. For it to be diagnosed as HSDD, it has to be distressing to the patient, right? So I'm not a doctor who is trying to force women who don't want to have sex to have sex. That's a female right, right? You don't have sex, that's fine. It has to be going on for greater than six months, right? So not directly attributable to a recent surgery or having a newborn. And it is marked by a decreased um, desire in sexual activity, absent sexual thoughts, So those are the markers. And, you know, there are treatment options now available. And it's always so interesting to me to watch patients when I tell them that, okay, this is what's going on. And guess what? There are FDA-approved treatment options. And there are blood tests that we can do. There's a little screener we can check and actually give you a score. So we can measure sexuality scientifically. So I love doing that for patients, but it's it's very, very common for me to see this in perimenopause and menopause. Got and it. it was amazing once that revelation came by because I literally, and I 
just asked her this recently. I'm like, why isn't it working? The parts, are they broken? Like, I, I mean, that is verbatim when I asked her, not like recently. I'm like, it's broken. Like, can you fix it? It's broken. And it was never broken before. So, you know, I, I can't attribute it to one thing or the other. Like I said, it just was one of those things that wasn't right. And it was like, why isn't it working anymore? It was, it was literally a chore to, to even get to arousal and like, okay, you had a really good time, but when is it going to be my turn? Like it, and it was months of that and it was not torture, but it wasn't enjoyable. Wasn't enjoyable. Wasn't what you were used to. No, It was distressing for you. And like you mentioned, you touched on it and I wanted to circle back because you Uh said if this was going on, it would have, it would have impacted my relationship, which for so many women, it could because it's distressing and you're not feeling great about yourself. Your partner's kind of like, I don't know what's going on either. It wasn't like this before. So can you share a little bit about like, how, how did it impact, you know, your quality of life, your relationship with your partner, other facets? Well, that whole kind of using, I don't want to say use sex as like stress relief, but I had a full-time job and, you know, my kids were, they're older now, but they were the age where we were running to practice and doing this and doing that and running all over the place. And it just, that's kind of your stress relief, right? If you can't go out and all the time that that time in the bedroom is kind of like, ah, let it all out. Like I feel much better now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't getting that there, there wasn't that release. It was this kind of go through the motions. It wasn't working right. It was awkward. And it's, we've been married for 24 years. It's never been awkward except for after babies, which I discount that. So it was really disconcerting. And he was like, well, what am I doing wrong? Like, do you feel okay? Am I hurting you? What's, what's happening? And I could never explain what's happening. I would just end up in tears because it wasn't working. And I jokingly say it wasn't working, but it literally wasn't working And I even had a bunch of pelvic floor testing done because I couldn't get anything to, I couldn't feel anything down there. Like there was just nothing happening. And I really thought I was broken. So I literally have had everything on that stinking list that you check off. I swear I can check every box and it has been a revelation. So there was a lot of tension between us, nothing that was fatal, nothing that was going to ruin us forever, but it wasn't it wasn't that natural ebb and flow of, you know, go out, have a little sex, feel a little better, grab a quickie when the kids are out. It it wasn't that kind of spontaneity anymore. It was, it was very rote and it was very, okay, I have to do this now. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole roll over, grab the blankets. Like, please don't touch me. Please don't touch me. I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. (laughs) Um, Go away. I'm only laughing because like I've done that before. Right, right. We all have, we all have, but nobody wants to admit it. Right. Right. But that was happening more often. So Mm -hmm. occasionally you do that because you're tired and you've had a busy day, but this was happening regularly where I was like, I really don't want him to come to this side of the bed. So what can I do to avoid him coming to the side of the bed? And it's not because I didn't want him to innately want him to. It's that there was this kind of push pull of my body doesn't want to, doesn't want him to, but my brain kind of does. And it was this weird juxtaposition between these two universes that made me feel sad and crazy. So it's mostly tension, I think, and just not being natural with each other like it used to be. It was work. And it's not fun when it's work. So Lori touched on a lot of things that I want to talk about as a sexual health provider. 
So she talks about these avoidance behaviors. We see them all the time. It is a defense mechanism because, you know, when you're in a relationship and most of the time patients come to me and say they adore their spouses. So even though a relationship can be an issue, for most of my patients, it's not. They love their spouse. They just don't want to be near them. And it's because they're not responding in the way that they're used to. They don't have those feelings of desire. And so, and it's not fun hurting someone you love because a lot of time the female partner or the male partner, whatever it is, they don't understand. They're like, I, we used to have this great sex. We had this great bond. We had this great chemistry. Am I doing something? You know, they don't get it. And when Lori didn't understand what was going on, it's very hard to verbalize and say, well, I don't mm-hmm. quite understand what's happening myself. So I don't know what to tell you, which is not very reassuring to a spouse. And so it's very typical to see these avoidance behaviors. And then what Lori was describing is checking a box sex, we call it, right? It is not mutually satisfying. It's mm-hmm. satisfying for one partner and not the other. And so we also get into this habit of women who call it checking a box sex, keeping the peace sex, you know, because I love him sex. And so a lot of the FDA approved treatment options actually prove one of the endpoints they met was mutually satisfying sexual encounters. So they understand that, you know, a woman or the patient who's taking the medication needs to be satisfied as well. And then they also increase desire and decrease the distress. We keep talking about the distress associated with this. Like Lori explained, it's not fun to all of a sudden find yourself in this situation where you had this stress relief, right? We release these amazing neurotransmitters with orgasm and sex and they make us feel really good, and they do reduce stress in our lives and help us connect with our partner so we're not just roommates. And we lose that, and that is very distressing to a lot of patients. And these drugs, hormones, can also decrease that distress associated with not having your sex life where it used to be, right? We're not going for normal, I hate that word, but where it used to be or where you want it to be. Um, and I think that's the key is recognizing it happens. It's called HSDD. It's not just menopausal or perimenopausal patients too. It is very common, but also younger patients. And there are treatment options that are safe and effective. So Lori, speaking of treatment, like what has it been like, like your treatment journey and like, what is your life like now that you know, and you've continuing on your treatment options, how has your life shifted? It's much better. Mm-hmm. And I have a myriad of lotions and potions that my dear doctor has given me to make me feel normal. (laughs) And I tell everybody about it. So I have a little pink pill that I take every night that, you know, I finally have dirty dreams sometimes, which I wasn't thinking about anything. And I, I I mean, you know, sometimes they're a little more graphic than I'd like them to be with people. I was like, Oh, that was interesting. But from going from nothing to that, I was, you know, for a little while, it was a little unnerving. It's like, okay, we're going to roll with this. But I think it's this magic cocktail that has been put together that was personalized for me. So it wasn't that I was trying to get a cookie cutter solve or go to Whole Foods and scan that aisle to say, okay, which is what I was doing. I'll try this and I'll try this and then I'll put all this together and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. So I think that's the journey has been over the past, I think it's been three years now, maybe, or almost three. It's a little more normal. There are bumps in the road. Don't get me wrong. Like things are, there were new things this month that didn't come up last month. And I was like, okay, can we fix this one? (laughs) And of course we can't because she can fix everything. 
but I think it's, it's that magic connection between what works for you as a person on an individual basis versus what works for universal women at this age. And I think that's the piece of the puzzle that was together for me. It wasn't lumping me into this, you're 40, whatever. So you should take this, this, and this because of this reason. It's you're 40, whatever, but here's your, here's how you feel. Here's your life. Here's what you want. And now let's go figure out how to go get that. And I'm not saying that the first try was magic. Like we played with different levels and we played with different stuff. We came back often and it seems to be where we're at right now is working other than a couple bumps, like I said, but that's the treatment plan. I think it, it it's different for everybody. Like there's not my magic lotion, maybe completely different magic lotion than what my girlfriend gets in her magic lotion, but it is magic. When I'm out, you know, I'm out and I'm like, hello. I, I love that because I always talk about how I love having magic wands, but I love the fact, I think that's so responsible, is that I don't have, I prescribe a lot of the same medications, but everyone's on different dosages, everyone's on different things. I try different things based on, you know, I've you've always heard me say this, Kamel, you need a thorough history and physical. That's why I worry about people who just get online and order something that's going to magically fix all your problems. Wouldn't everyone want that? And so you look at the other medication someone's on, their expectations, what's bothering them the most, um, their hormone levels. So history, physical exam, hormone levels. And I love the fact that, Lori, you're in so much of a better place, but you said the timeline. So many women come to me and they've been struggling for years and years and years and they're like, you can fix it. I'm like, yes, I can fix it. But it's a partnership. You know, it's back and forth. You telling me, I don't like this. I tell people all the time, I don't take it personally. I don't make the drugs. I don't profit from the drugs. Like, tell me if you don't like it. Tell me about your side effects. I can only help you if you tell me the good, bad, and the ugly. And you're honest with me. Like, you know, one of the options is an injection. And oftentimes patients are like, like their eyes get huge. No way. Great. That's awesome. Let's not go that route. Because if you take it home and you have no intention of using it because you're terrified of needles, I've just done you a huge disservice because you're not going to take the medicine. You're not going to get better. And so it's a true partnership. That's the way I look at it. And it is very individualized because there is no cookie cutter option. I wish there was, but there's not. And I think the other revelation I had that very first, and I'm going back two years ago, that very first appointment when I cried my eyes out like a baby, literally, was that it's the first time a medical professional had done a full panel, like a full, complete hormonal panel, not just testing one or two things. And she also was looking at like vitamin D. Like I had no idea that my lack of vitamin D was affecting me on so many different levels. So it wasn't that we were just fixing the sexual issue. She was fixing everything holistically and connecting the dots that nobody else had known to even connect. And I think that is part why I'm such a super fan and totally have a girl crush, which I tell everyone I have a girl crush on my gynecologist (laughs) because I do not in a dirty way, just in a completely loving way. Um, But nobody else has done that. And nobody else is doing that. I love that, you know, your focus as a practice is to grow this type of thinking and this approach and help everybody because it's so very different. And I tell everyone about it because no one looked at it that way. You look through one lens and I'm 40 plus, you should do this. There were no other options. If you could go back 
five, seven years, or you're talking to someone who is just kind of experiencing this, if you could do say one thing, which I know is probably hard. I know it's very um, hard for me. One pearl <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> for me. One pearl of wisdom or like biggest piece of advice. What would it be? I know that's probably pretty tough. It is, but it isn't. I think the very first thing is you have to find somebody who you can share with whether that's a girlfriend or a medical professional, because it's certainly not going to be your partner, or your husband. I can tell you that right now. Like, unless you have some really crazy innate relationship with each other, that's a territory. Like we touched on before, it's too weird because you can't explain what's going on. But I think you have to first be able to give yourself permission to say, I don't feel right. And I don't know why. And there's nothing medically wrong with me. Mm-hmm. rule out the medical stuff. And then you have to seek out someone who you can talk to. That's my one big aha. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't have the answers. If somebody wants to talk about it, I can just say, here's what I felt. This sounds a lot like it. And it's okay to talk about it. Cause maybe you should ask those questions. But I think that's so important. It's like, I think having that sounding board and that person who has your back to say, no, get this checked or it's not normal is really important. Nobody wants to talk about the sexual aspect of it. That That's the other thing, right? You can talk about the physical symptoms and I feel like an emotional roller coaster and I'm kind of crazy with my kids, blah, blah, blah. But nobody wants to talk about the, the other where well, I'm not really having fun in the bedroom because then they think something's wrong with your relationship or something's wrong with you. So there is a line that even in those conversations that you're like, I'm not sure I want to go there because I'm not supposed to not be working correctly. So there's there's a little rub there. Mm-hmm. for me anyway, that you have to kind of ease into that part if you're not comfortable talking about that. But I think there's got to be a way in. Mm-hmm. My advice to women is a couple fold. So uh, number one, a lot of doctors are not trained. Speaking of sexual sexuality, sexual dysfunction, anything like that. So if you want to bring that up, you should probably make sure that your provider is comfortable with that because the worst thing to do is go on and you're uncomfortable. And then on top of it, your provider is uncomfortable. Nothing is going to be accomplished. Always write things down. I, I tell patients, especially in this um, health insurance world that we have a 15-minute visit, if you write it down and you're prepared, you'll be much more likely to talk about things that you've not been comfortable with before or that don't come naturally. Always write it down. And my third piece of advice is because of our current insurance model, you you must make a problem visit separate from your annual because this is what's going to happen to you. Your provider is going to come in to do an annual and they're going to do your breast exam, your pelvic, talk to you about contraception, height, weight, and that's it. And that's the way annuals are set up. And so oftentimes this will happen to me too. We call it doorknob medicine, which is a pet peeve of mine I, because because patients deserve better, not because it's taking up more of my time. My hand's on the door. I'm like, okay. And they're like, but wait, I have to talk to you about blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, so let me tell you why I'm not going to address it today, but I absolutely want to hear you out. But let me get the blood work. Let's get that all done today. Then when you come in, I will sit down with you for 20, 40, 60 minutes, and we will pay attention to these problems as you so deserve. Um, a lot of women even feel nervous about making the appointment. So they'll say it's an annual, but then you walk in the room and it's about sex or abnormal bleeding or pelvic pain. And it doesn't set the patient up for a great experience. And it certainly doesn't set the provider up as well. And so if you're having any issues, set it aside as a separate visit. And that way you'll get the time and attention you deserve. That's really good advice. And I think you're right. Some people are just even, I mean, I think I would be too, just like, 
you know, you feel a little embarrassed about it. And even if you're nervous about saying what it is in our office, we allow them to say just GYN problem. And so, you know, we figure then it's a menopause or a sexual health problem, but then, you know, you're talking to a front desk. I get it. They're not medical. They're not a nurse. And so you don't want to share that. We allow that. So it's like, okay, and we list it on our visit as gin problem, but at least that way they don't get scheduled as a preventative routine annual and that we make sure that we have everything that day that we, we need for that patient. Well, this was so informative. Lori, thank you so much for sharing. I think this is going to help a lot of women. I learned a ton. You're so welcome. My pleasure. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMD Health and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you'd like to share your sexual health story, you can reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.